<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Trigger warning. The following episode contains descriptions of graphic violence, sexual assault, and adult language. Viewer discretion is advised. I'm Danielle. I'm Max. And each Wednesday, we crack open a bottle of wine and dive into some thrills, chills, and spills. This is Innocent Till Tipsy. There's a new HBO documentary out that's produced by Mark Wahlberg, of all people. I know. Isn't that weird? Um, And it's about the murders of three women that occurred in March of 1960 in LaSalle County, Illinois. Okay. So kind of near Chicago area and how possibly one man, Chester Otto Weger, went to prison for 59 years for this crime that he might not have even committed. Oh, that's a long time to go to jail. No. So he's, he's been released as of quarantine time back in 2020, um, for, uh, on parole. He wasn't exonerated or anything. Yeah. So, um, and I tell you when I checked out this documentary, it was, I didn't know what to think. I hadn't heard anything about this case before. So this was all brand new to me. Um, the first episode I was like, oh, he is for sure guilty. Like a hundred percent lock him up, throw away the key kind of thing. Second episode, I was like, oh my God, he's like for sure innocent. Like it was like a total shift. <laughs> and then by the third episode, I was like, I truly do not know. Like I have, How many episodes I, are there? Just three. There's just three. It's a docu series. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So What's the it it's called the murders at starved rock, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, something about the murders of starved rock. <laughs> of course I didn't write the actual name down. Um, but, um, it was such a crazy divisive case and you could even see in the locals, you either like believed he was, or you believed he wasn't. And there was just so many people had so many different opinions about it, but I left the documentary thinking about how the most important question we need to be asking ourselves isn't necessarily whether Chester Weger is innocent or guilty. It's whether there was enough evidence against Chester to send him away for 59 years. Ooh, yeah. So, yeah. cause if police didn't do their due diligence, we tend to forget, yeah. yeah, innocent until proven guilty. Right. So, Recently, Andy Hale, who is actually the current lawyer for Chester Weger, has reached out to our team to cover these murders. So, yeah, super excited. Yeah. And we're going to have Andy along with his co-host, Whitney. They run their own podcast. It's called The Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale and co-hosted by Whitney Braun, who is actually the HBO supervising producer for the docuseries. Okay. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to talk to both of them because they have a wide, vast knowledge about the case. But as always, they're, of course, going to be opinionated towards Chester. That's his lawyer. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what he's paid to do. Um, so as always, we encourage you to look at your own evidence, kind of um, get your own informed opinion. Definitely look at the court documents. I will say Andy does on his website um, in each episode that he has for his current podcast, and they're still releasing every week a new episode. Um, he has a little blog that he kind of pairs with the episode that has the actual court documents, some photos from the crime scene, things like that for you to kind of peruse through. Cause I found it was actually really hard to find certain articles. I actually had to pay for a time subscription because I wanted to see like, yeah, I, well, I wanted to see current day stuff from back then, like what the news articles were saying and everything. Right. So I was like, I guess I'll just pay. It's fine. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I'm excited for that. But before we get into everything having to do with Chester Weger and the murders at Starved Rock, what wine do you have for us today, Max? I have a good one. I'm so excited for this one. Today, I have open for you Decoy, um, which is part of the Duckhorn Wine Company portfolio. So you may have seen, oh, there you go, backwards, the um, sister label Duckhorn, which um, for comparison, you can find Decoy at Target for about 20 bucks. Or anywhere you get your wine. But um, Duckhorn's like $110. So it's like decoy's like one tenth of the price. And um, 
I googled is decoy better than or is duckhorn better than decoy? Yes, I mean like they're charging a hundred million dollars a bottle for it. But, <laughs> no, it's a scam. <laughs> no, they're just like, ah, it's the same thing. No, definitely not the same thing. Um, but it's it's just the decoy. What we're drinking today is like a buy and drink now, and duckhorn is like the type of wine you buy and you keep in your wine cellar and you let it age. And like, yeah, we just want to drink it now. So um, <laughs> it's great for us. About nineteen dollars a bottle. Um, like I mentioned, part of the Duckhorn portfolio, and it's mostly Cab Sav and Merlot. So I have good vibes about this. And um, I did, I did learn a lot in researching this one, honestly, because um, I was like, where does it come from? And all I could find was like California, <laughs> and but that's because it's a blend. And mm-hmm. actually, it's AVA, which is American Viticultural Area. So like because it comes from these certain areas, um, they like talk about what counties it's from Sonoma County, um, Central Coast, North Coast and Medicino and Napa. So it's from like wine country. Oh, okay. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and decoy um, started about 30 years ago. Um, and it was just this um, like a duck horn, like label, like off of, off of duck horn. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's decoy. And then they started as their own winery um, in 2008. And so now there's more than just this decoy. We have the red blend. Um, And then this is what I'm very excited for. I did try to find it. We cannot find it. Um, In 2021, they started seltzers. Wine seltzers. What? I know. So we may have to revisit this. Maybe. Uh, I know. I I really wanted to try it. But they also have other labels. So I mentioned Duckhorn. They have Paradox, Goldeneye, Migration, Canvasback, and uh, I think Calera is how you say it. So, and they all have... uh, Ducks. (laughs) Ducks. <laughs> I was going to say like waterfowl. I don't know. Um, on their labels. So very fun and interesting. All right. Let's take a, take a swirl, take a sniff, take a taste. Oh, yeah. I got to swirl it. My, oh, terrible. Just falling apart today. I poured such a big glass. I'm very nervous about swirling. I know. I poured, I'm a big glass. And I poured a huge one. <laughs> All right. All right. Smell it. Tell me what you smell. Actually smells very good. I think it's just I'm excited about this wine. I smell cherries for some reason. Well, other people. Well, that's wrong. (laughs) Cherries are dark berries, Um, boysenberries, blackberries, cranberries, plums. So let's taste. Oh, plums. I can taste that. Taste that. Smell that. Oh, that is so good. Yes, I do like Mm -hmm. this. That is so good. We didn't cheers. 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 Yeah, I like that. It's, okay. it's got a nice acidity to it, too. As oh, you know, it went down the back of my throat. <laughs> um, yes, it does. Actually, okay, so I think I'm going to start including this because mm-hmm. I just want it for comparison. So um, you can look up. It's 0.61 grams per 100 milliliters in acidity, a pH of 3.67. So I don't know where this falls on the scale. Good wine. This is like going to be our bar now. Um, and 13.9% <laughs> alcohol aged in 12 months. Aged for 12 months in 100% French oak because a lot of wines are either French oak or American oak. And of that French oak, 30% of it was new. So that like when you start to look at like what, how a wine gets to what it ends up being. Yeah. Um, we've talked about has to do with the oak. And so now we know French oak, 30% of it was new. Um, what I liked also about this site was it tells us not just to pair it with red meat. <laughs> Um, they actually gave us like a ton of recipes um, to pair this with online. I know. And their Instagram is very pretty. Um, so pairs well with roast beef, lamb chops, black pepper, mushrooms, aged Gouda, like all the umame. I love it. Um, so are you linking? We'll be linking this in the description, obviously, but you're going to send that to me too, right? So I can make some food. <laughs> eat your face. Yes, this is great. Yummy. It's so good. I know aged Gouda. Now I'm just like, if we could eat on the show. Oh, Yeah. We got to do a special episode someday or something with like uh, an actual sommelier. That would be nice. Yeah. So that you just hear, wouldn't just hear me like rambling on about nonsense. <laughs> um, you do your research. I did. That that was legit. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of it so far? I really like it. I, I don't know how the entire bottle is going to like sit without being touched. You know, I'm probably going to refill. This oh, I know. I mean, like, since we're not splitting a bottle, like, this I could know. get into danger zone. Um, <laughs> we really could be tipsy by the end. Yes, that's possible. Um, I do like this. I don't feel like it's too bold or too harsh. Like, you're not, like, breathing fumes. So, um, yeah. I like it. Oh, awesome. Well, 
Monday, March 14th, 1960. Uh, Francis Murphy, who was 47, Mildred Lindquist, 50, and Lillian Odin, 50, were three friends, mothers, who were going out, um, leaving their affluent Chicago area. They were in Riverside Homes, suburban Chicago, for a four-day winter vacation. Okay. I don't I don't think I would do a winter vacation, but I'm not a winter person. <laughs> They're more adventurous than I am. I thought you meant like because it's still March, it was cold. Like they were getting out of the cold. Okay. They're going. No, they're staying. In, yeah. Yeah. It's like a little, uh, not a weekend getaway. Cause it was like the middle of the week they left on a Monday, but yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, get up, get away from your life. Yeah. Okay. Right. So they were staying at starved rock lodge, which was a fancy schmancy hotel height of luxury, huge, like log, almost cabin type thing. Um, people kind of waiting on you hand and foot. Nice. Be fun. Yeah. Yes. Fun girls trip. So after checking into the lodge at 1245, the ladies went to grab their lunch vouchers. This is the last moment that they were seen. That's not debatable. Okay. So, Weird. okay. Yeah. There's some witnesses that say they see them after there's a few conflicting details from that. We'll get into those, but this is the last official time they're seen Monday at 1245. Okay. Okay. The three women had lunch at the lodge, presumably, and then they left their purses in their room. They then went for a hike through the St. Louis Ca- Canyon, which is speculated that they did this around 145. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then Tuesday morning, March 15th, Herman Oding, so Lillian's husband, he calls the lodge to inquire about his wife's whereabouts. He hasn't heard from her yet. Yeah, I mean, nothing till Tuesday. Yeah. Normally, you give a call and say you got in, you know, at night. I mean, or like, hey, have a nice night, like, good night. Yeah. Play tomorrow or something. Right. Yeah. So he's told by whoever it was at the front desk that the ladies were in safe and sound and that they had actually had breakfast that morning, Tuesday morning. He saw them. This person at the front yeah. desk claims that that it was it was logged, and it's not only just this person. There would be another witness that said that they saw the log in the hotel that said that the women had had breakfast on Tuesday morning. Did they have to have vouchers for breakfast too? I don't know. Why are they logging guest breakfast? That's what I, was I don't wondering. know. Maybe or maybe they charge it to the room. Yeah, might charge it to the room. Um, because I know I've worked. Um, this is going to come up anyways. I worked hotels most of my adult life um so usually if, if it's on property usually we would charge things to the room but i don't i wasn't working in 1960 either i'm working yeah. during digital time so i don't know how it's how it works right um but yes so and and then they said that they must have gone hiking in the park um but this doesn't make sense because the ongoing popular narrative of this case is the police and the public maintain that the women died on monday yeah, that's what I was. I know, like, I should let you tell your story, but I'm like already questioning everything. No, do the questions. Because, yeah. yeah, like that. If they hadn't really been seen since lunch on Monday, mm-hmm. then yeah, how would they know on Tuesday if they were actually the ones eating breakfast and all that? Yeah. Right. So some dismiss this um, this Tuesday morning breakfast as a lot of affairs happened at the lodge. So perhaps that was what was going on and hotel staff were trying to give cover. Apparently it was known that the hotel staff would give cover. This doesn't jive with me personally because you can always tell usually as a hotel worker who's conducting affairs when they check in. Um, Three 50-year-old-ish women coming in on their first trip. Yeah, like unless they're swingers, like I I don't know. It doesn't seem like they're having affairs to me. Um, and another thing, but I mean, like live your life. Like, <laughs> but like <laughs> another like weird thing is like, as a hotel worker who is, you're not supposed to you sign NDAs, all sorts of things when you when you work for a hotel. So especially front desk because you see it all like come through <laughs> the lobby. Yeah. So you're not supposed to give any explanation you're not supposed to let people know who's on the room you're not supposed to give out any information so that the thought of covering for someone i've never had to do that yeah um, and i don't know why you'd be covering for a guest that you like you're just assuming they're having an affair like that wouldn't make any sense anyways yeah that doesn't make any sense to me so um yeah but even if it is like devil's advocate maybe they did like make up the story um but legally they shouldn't have told him anything anyways if that's what they were doing but anyways so um that night was one of the coldest nights on record which by the way this march in 1960 is still the coldest march to happen in that area 
Ooh. Yeah. That's old. That's, yeah. That's going to come up. So Herman a normal called- Fahrenheit. I'll give you the, I'll give you the, I know you're, you're always like mathing. I'll give you the degrees later. I I mentioned this later. (laughs) So that, um, so that night Herman calls a lodge back and he's now concerned. He has not heard from his wife and it's freezing cold outside. Like, where is she? So Esther, who had checked the women in the previous day, took down the message and put it in her room box. Oh, Wednesday, my note, a room box. I'm like, what is a room? It's like voicemail. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so, Wednesday, March 16th. So, we're two days later from Monday. So, Wednesday, March 16th, Herman now demands that they physically go and check on the women. Hotel staff knock on the door, but there's no response. They enter the room to find the beds are neatly made and their suitcases are not unpacked, which oh, lines up with the initial theory that the women died on Monday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. However, inconsistency here because they would then say that the hiking clothes, the women's hiking clothes had been laid out in their drawers. So which is it? Were the bags packed or were they not? Yeah. Yeah. Were there purses in their rooms? Yeah. Yeah. And that makes my purse on a hike either, but I'm not hiking. So, um, right. That's, that's really strange. And I'm not saying like, it is weird to me too, that they assume the women are going on hikes. I mean, I guess if you're an active person, but for 50 years old, the women did look, they look very matronly. Like I, I at 30 wouldn't be going out and hiking, but then again, I don't go on winter vacations, but I don't know. Well, you'd think you'd at least unpack your suitcase to get something out. Like maybe your gloves are in your suitcase. You'd, you'd go and you get ready for a hike. But that's the thing that doesn't make any sense to me is like if the hiking clothes are laid out in the drawers and everything, then they they weren't wearing them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And that begs the question to ask that the three housekeepers that responded to the room, how accurate were their statements? Because if they're saying the bags aren't packed, but you know what I'm saying? There's inconsistencies already. Yeah. Yeah. And um, how come housekeeping didn't like see this? On Sooner. Monday or Tuesday, I guess Tuesday yeah. or something. That's what Andy and Whitney brought up in their in their podcast too. They were like, "Well, why would um, uh, like why would housekeeping like if this is a fancy schmancy lodge, right? Right? Why are they not doting on them every day? You know, tidying up the room and cleaning. So then you wonder, well, maybe that does lead to the fact of they did clean it up, you know, during the um, between Monday and Tuesday. That I mean, that's a possibility too. Maybe they went in and remade the beds and and all of that, but there's no real note of that. Sure. Um, Mm-hmm. The log. Yeah. Gotcha. So Herman now demands that the authorities be notified and called Mildred and Francis's husband. So the other women's husbands to let them know that their wives are missing by 9 a.m. That Wednesday, a search begins for the missing women that was constructed of a, a few employees from the lodge, along with a handful of boys from the Marseille c- camp for boys who were juvenile delinquents and their wards. It's just like happening next to the lodge. They're just yeah. like at a winter camp um, for boys, for juvenile delinquents. Hmm. And they're like, bring them in for the yeah, search. We okay. need a search. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a group of about six of these boys and their warden got stuck near the St. Louis. Or it's either Louis or Louis. I'm terrible pronunciation. You guys know this. Anyways, um, Canyon in the slush. So they set out on foot towards the Canyon and that's where the boys found the victims' bodies. The All boys did. The boys did. And very quickly. Interesting. So yeah. all three women, Frances, Murphy, Mildred Lindquist, and Lillian Oding, mothers, wives, were found brutally murdered in the snow. They were nearly unrecognizable. Their faces had been beaten so badly that officers would assume that a tree limb they found in the snow was one of the murder weapons. This was a tree limb that one of the investigators would later place on his mantle as a trophy. An investigator? An investigator. This is bizarre. This is like beyond bizarre. Yeah. They also, investigators also deduced that a camera had been among one of the murder weapons used on the women. So just bludgeoning weapons. Keep that in mind. Each of the women were laid out spread eagle on like their legs spread eagle mm-hmm. with their undergarments remo- removed. So police believed that whoever had done this had made it look like a rape and yeah. that it was a robbery gone wrong. Now, 
I that I've, I was going to say that, like, I've never heard of a robbery going this wrong, but we talked about Alan Legere on here. But then again, he's a fucking serial killer. Yeah. And sounds and, like a serial killer. Yeah. This doesn't sound like a like an accident robbery gone wrong. No. Right. So each of the women had twine binding their hands. And Frances Murphy, part of her index finger had been removed post-mortem with what looked to be a knife. You like none a of the, Yeah, because right? Because none yeah. of the other women had any mutilations by knife knives on their body. Mm-hmm. So that's strange. Now the ladies' bodies would be taken to the Hulse funeral home in Ottawa, Illinois, where it was determined that the three women had suffered about a hundred blows collectively to their faces. Police, I know it's like super brutal. So police would theorize concerning the blood in the snow that they had been killed outside the cave that they were found in. And then that the person or persons had drugged the women into the cave. Got it. Um, At first they did think it was persons just because of the sheer brutality and three against one. Yes. Right. Like that too. Like, why wouldn't they have fought back? There's like, I mean, maybe if they were tied up, but how did they get them tied up in the first place? Did they just tell them it was a robbery? I don't know. And then, too, when you think about, like, if you saw the canyon, you can see it on the HBO doc, but, like, mm-hmm. it's a it's a trek to pull them up into the cave. Like, I can't see, you know how when you've got dead weight, like, if you're trying to lift that up, it, it'd be very difficult to lift them up as far as they were lifted into the cave. Uphill. Yeah, from where they think they were bludgeoned. Yeah. Yeah. So they assume the women had been killed on Monday, as we said before, right after they'd arrived and supposedly gone sightseeing, considering that their rooms weren't too disheveled. However, as Andy pointed out on his podcast, this March of 1960, and we mentioned it earlier, remains the coldest March on record for LaSalle County, Illinois, which would call time of death into question, especially in the 1960s. Like, how are they telling time of death? Right. So... In fact, on the 14th, when the women were supposedly on their hike, it was 28 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus two Celsius it's for everyone else. Freezing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a cold for day. Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> for everyone else, we're the only ones that use this. <laughs> I know. I know. Crazy Americans. Yes. I, know. I still don't understand Fahrenheit. <laughs> Maybe your Celsius makes a lot more sense. I get it. <laughs> um, so. Was it possible that the ladies had actually eaten breakfast on Tuesday morning at the lodge before being killed on Tuesday instead of Monday? These are answers that Andy is still trying to come up with to this day. I know because 2022 me is like screaming forensics. I'm like, it's below freezing, but the autopsy, but like they should know these things like for time of death now that they were outside, but it's also inclement weather. Like you mentioned slush and like all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So and you mentioned the case has been mishandled. So like all of, oh. so like, I feel like there's a lot of details that could have been had here. It's so mishandled. So it would take like to, to think of an investigator putting a murder weapon on his mantle oh, as like a trophy, like that's disgusting. So mm-hmm. it would take police over six months to narrow in on a suspect for the crime. Tons of speculation during this time. And the public was in a panic. Like maybe there's a madman on the loose. There's asylums nearby, you know, and the lodge was down on business as well. They were losing business. People were canceling their reservations because who would want to go? There's a murderer on the loose. Right. So this put a lot of pressure, not only on the tourism industry in the area, which was losing a ton of money, but also on the police to get their guy. Like they've got a madman out Mm. there, you know, that just murders innocent mothers. Right. So. Oh, don't be hasty. I know, though. I know. I know. So shortly after the bodies were discovered to hopefully lessen the impact on his own business and get things moving again, the owner of the lodge, who is reportedly a millionaire and very influential in that area, his name was Nick Spiros. He soon opens his employees up for questioning um, with the investigators with lie detectors. We now know polygraph. Is yeah. Exactly inadmissible. Yes. So I don't know if it was back then, but yeah, so not a great time. So oddly enough, um, Nick Spiros's own son, George Spiros, was one of the first initial suspects in this case. Hmm. When George was questioned by police, 
He said he saw a dishwasher, Chester Weger, who was 21 years old at the time, and his friend, Stanley, talking to, to those three women. He wasn't sure why he'd placed them in the car or anything like that, but he, he thought he'd seen them. So soon after the murders, oddly enough, George would reportedly, reportedly go on an extended vacation to Greece. But he wouldn't be the only suspect dismissed for the convenience of Chester Weger. We'll get into them soon. But the women's husbands at the time would also put out a $30,000 reward attached on to Nick Spiros's additional 5000 for good measure. He put out a award um, for any information because, of okay. course, he wants, you know, he wants his business back. Right. So funny thing, <laughs> this reward would later be split between three investigators that worked the case. Three investigators. I feel like you should be disqualified. I think that's your job. I feel like that's a um, conflict of interest and can yeah. really make you want to get whoever did this and, you know, for their crime. Whatever information you want to, yeah, put forth to get the reward. Yeah. So after the discovery of the bodies, the police came up with the initial theory um, that they thought at first at least two individuals had carried out this crime. There were newspaper articles, too, of looking for at least two suspects concerning these slayings. So someone had seen the women leave the lodge on Monday morning to go out sightseeing. Follow. This is their idea. Like Monday afternoon after they check in. They they spot these women at the lodge. And th this does happen. It's rare that you have a stranger do this to you. But it does happen where strangers get like, if they're, you know, something's not correct or what mm -hmm. have you. Followed them. Robbery gone bad. Staged it as a rape in order to cover their tracks. This is what police initially believed. My question, mind you, I'm not an investigator. I only majored in a Bachelor of Arts with criminology. So I haven't had the schooling these gentlemen probably had in their time. But it seems like a crime of passion to me or like a serial killer-esque crime, like with the amount of violent blows they had to their faces, the underwear being removed. Like that's almost like humiliating them after life. It's like boredom, yeah. That they yeah. were positioned and they were taken from that spot A to spot B. Yeah, and there was no rape either. Like there was no semen found at the scene or anything. So no sign of that. So it's just interesting to me, like why you would stage it and everything else. But... This brings us to why police attention started to zero in on Chester Weger, who was about 120 pounds, worked as a dishwasher at the lodge, was married with kids at the time of his arrest. Now, two stories. We talked about the George Spiros one, him bringing him up to investigators. He did bring Chester and his friend Stanley up to investigators. However, there's also another story concerning the twine that was around the women's hands. Mm -hmm. So um, many believe that police were kind of led to Chester because of the twine as well. The twine could also be found in the tool shed. Some of the kitchen staff would use it. And that kind of brought more attention onto Chester at the time. So they asked Chester about this twine. Did he ever use it? You know, um, mm -hmm. it, did he know about it? And he said he would. He'd use it for cats in the cradle. I don't know if anyone remembers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the string you used to play you used to play with your hands with strings oh my gosh, i could do so much with that i, oh, remember, like, yeah. I used to love it i used to trap people's hands uh it was <laughs> i had a whole book in the 90s on like all the games you could play right yes. yeah so this wasn't the only thing that brought investigator suspicions onto him either as chester had been involved in the possible rape of an eight-year-old girl when he was just 12 years old you. I know. Yeah. So meanwhile, Chester had told police that he had just been helping this girl home and that the blood on his pants had been had been because of a snake he killed on the trail. Well, that sounds like a 12 year old like lie. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like the best a 12 year old can lie. Um, and that really sucks if he's innocent of this crime that he has that rap sheet. Yeah. So his sister would later say that this didn't happen and that her, like Chester's sister, she said this in the documentary, that this hadn't happened and that, and I don't know, this is something I would like to ask Andy and Whitney and I have it written down for them. Was there ever a conviction on this? Um, yes, because it wasn't clear in the documentary and he hasn't gotten to it yet with his podcast. It's still ongoing. I don't know if he's even going to touch on it, but I would be interested in knowing if there was a conviction there. Not that that means he's guilty in this, but it does give like a little bit of more of like, 
why you would be suspicious of him for something like this. Um, But his sister said that this girl and Chester remained friends, though, after this event that she says didn't happen. And they even played together. But if you're a sexual assault survivor, sometimes that's how it is. Like, you know what I mean? kids. And their kids. They have, like, fully formed ideas of that. Exactly. So... Six months after the bodies had been found, Chester had already passed several polygraph tests concerning these these crimes. But then police asked him for another. This time they were taking him to Chicago and he failed it. So he would soon make a full confession to the murders. Now, I know how long was I want to be like, how long was he held for questioning? Like, how did all of this unfold? I got you. Okay. (laughs) It's important to keep in mind with Chester's case um, that this was held before Brady versus Maryland. Now, Brady versus Maryland. We've talked about this before. Yeah. um, Was a landmark case in the United States that where the United States Supreme Court decided that prosecution must turn over all evidence that might exonerate a defendant. So we talked about this with Ryan Ferguson, um, that judge, Kevin Crane. He withheld a lot of that and Brady violations. All the discovery. Yeah. (laughs) So the investigators would use a tactic when questioning um, Chester as well. Um, That was called the read technique. And this is where it's like an accusatory process. It's when an investigator tells the suspect that their investigation has clearly indicated that they did commit this crime. And it's usually done in a monologue way. And then kind of asking almost like leading questions. It's very controversial. Like if you, if you look at sure. it um, and it's kind of threatening too. It's like you best confess in order to receive, you know, some leniency. Cause we already know, we know that you did this. So if you want to receive any leniency, you know, you better tell us like the full story now. Cause we're aware, you know? Mm-hmm. So their way of doing this with Chester was investigator William Dummett, who's the same investigator that took that limb and put it on his mantelpiece. So he's just a real treat. And yeah. he didn't have any technical training either in investigating this kind of crime. LaSalle County isn't that big of a county. So sure. they'd never dealt with something like this, right? So Dummett threatened Chester with the electric chair. Now, usually when you come with false confessions, it usually has something to do with you being threatened with death or being promised mm-hmm. something to get out of it. So like we talked with Amanda Knox, I mean, she was promised she'd see her mom and get to go home and she, yeah, she thought she was years. yeah. <laughs> but like when you're a kid or when adults are telling you things, you don't really pay attention, but yeah. So yeah. Um, Dummett would then deny that he had ever told Chester about the electric chair, but then Craig Armstrong, an assistant state attorney, would testify in court that he had heard Dummett threaten Chester with bodily harm, telling him that he would ride the thunderbolt, quote unquote, if he didn't confess. Yikes. Yeah. I was going to say, like, this is before the time that they recorded all interviews (laughs) or like, yeah, I already feel for his attorneys, like, because there's it's so bungled. Oh, my God. How do you make sense out of nonsense? I mean, and this far down the road, too, it's almost Mm -hmm. impossible. Um, So Chester was also kept awake at one point for 24 hours during his interrogation. I feel like that's illegal now, too, probably. That doesn't sound okay. It sounds like you're going to get false confessions. Right? So, um, and we know, like, both of these leads to false confessions. So just a couple days after he made his full confession, which we'll talk about what that all entails um he would recant the entire thing and he has remained like ever since for the past like what 50 more than 50 years he has stated his innocence he has not gone back to that confession at all so on november 17th 1960 chester weger would make his full confession later saying that he'd confess now and then prove his innocence on trial that's what he thought he was going to do yeah, I feel like a lot of people that f- falsely confess think like, oh, well, the evidence will show I'm clearly innocent. Yeah. And we have to remember, too, and I don't think people understand this as much as they should, especially in the United States. Um, while we are somewhere where it should be innocent until proven guilty, 
doesn't always act that way. And the police have certain numbers they have to hold up. You see it with even um, speeding tickets. Like they have to get so many speeding tickets in a month. Whereas with a violent crime like this, it's like you want to keep your county's crime limit down. You want to look good against other police departments. It's that you kind keep of your close rates high too. You don't want all of these open cases. Yeah. I wish it wasn't like that. I don't think it should be like that because I think it does lead to things like this happening. But (sighs) so Chester's abbreviated confession is as follows. He says the murders happened on Monday after lunch. Chester thought one of the women had a purse on her when she was walking through the woods. So we now know they left them in the room, but he went to grab it and then saw that he grabbed a camera strap. This began a verbal argument, he said, between the four of them. But then everyone suddenly decided to go their own ways. They kind of had a truce. They're going to walk away. And then suddenly one of the women attacked him. And this and led to- how old again? Oh, uh, near 50 or 50. Right. And they're going to attack like a 21-year-old that just attacked them? Yeah, no. That doesn't, that doesn't sound plausible. Yeah. No. So this led him apparently to viciously murder them, drag them into the cave, frame it as rape, and then go back to work because he worked the rest. (laughs) And he did have a little bit of blood. So he was wearing blue jeans. And then there was this um, coat that he had this jacket and the jacket still is in evidence. And um, that jacket did have a little bit of blood on it. Chester would later say that it was just from hunting like animal blood, right? But I mean, at the time they didn't have the DNA, you know, that we could do it and then get this. Since then, they we found out with the documentary, so they still have the jacket, his buckskin jacket. They still have the stupid jacket, but they stored it with the victim's clothing. <sighs> Transfer in a bag. Yeah. You test it. Well, oh, and if you were his attorney, you would not test it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. 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 So, and it doesn't make sense. Like, why would he, if he obliterated their faces, he would be covered in blood. Like, and then he just went back to work. I don't know. But, I don't know. Any, like, okay. So you said you thought he might be innocent. And, but then like episode two, you thought he might be guilty or what, vice versa or something like that. So why would anyone think he's guilty besides this? So the way they, I think they did it on purpose that way. The way they narrated it, he was like the big boogeyman in the first episode. Yeah, I know. But like, so what? Really- why would why do they why is there suspicion of him besides his false confession? So besides the false confession, there was something he said in the confession about a plane. Um, there was a red and white plane he had said had flown over him, and that was why he drugged the women into the cave. Okay, um, that's why he removed them from where they were. I don't know how he did it in such a fast way, or like if that was really his intention. If he was just trying to hide it for if the plane you know flew over again, I don't know. Um, so this plane, come to find out, um, it had flown over the canyon or cave um, on Monday. But then there was connections to Dummett when it came to that um, plane and everything else. I didn't write this down. I'm just like talking off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, they go through it in the docuseries. But they really told the story at first from the police perspective, like what they were looking at. And then also, this was interesting to note, too. Um Chester, and I would like to ask Andy and Whitney about this as well. Chester has a tattoo on his arm that says Rocky on it, a little underline underneath it. And if you go into the cave, there's a carving of Rocky. So, and it looks pretty similar to Chester's tattoo. That was his like um, uh, nickname back then. Mm, Okay. So it is interesting. And like, I was like, it, it made sense from the thought of like, okay, say he was just going to rob. He saw them go into the woods. He thought easy targets, like done and done. But then what doesn't make sense too is the women walked in when where they walked, supposedly walked, where investigators think that they walked. It's quite treacherous. So then you think of women and in, heading into their 50s. It's like, why would you, it's icy. It's treacherous. It's freezing cold. Yeah. Why would you do this? So there's a theory that they actually were driven to where they were murdered. So that would make more sense in the long run. Like maybe they hitched a ride to go take some photos of like the waterfall or like what have you. And then, you know, they were murdered. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so because he saw a plane, he's guilty. And because his, because Rocky is inscribed in the cave or something that that's also like this evidence against him. Yeah. I think but if he's a dishwasher at this hotel, like, and this is a cave that's like, 
it's not clearly not that far from the lodge, right? Mm-hmm. Couldn't he have gone there before? Couldn't someone else have written Rocky? Couldn't that plane have like flown over like on a different day? He's seen it before. Yeah, he's he goes to work there. I know a lot of the crap that happens like around my workplace. I'm like, oh yeah, I saw that truck. Never mind, that probably was Tuesday. Like, I don't know. I just don't feel like that's very strong evidence. No, I feel like all of the evidence against Chester, from what I've looked at, it's all circumstantial. Like there is nothing that ties him physically into the crime at all. Um, I mean, you could say maybe the blood on his, the, and it's just, it's not a huge, like you can see it on the documentary. They hold the, it up and it's not covered. It's like a little splotch of blood. And I, I can see like maybe questioning it, but it's like, unless you can tell if it's animal blood or not, like, what are you, what are you going to do? You know? But then again, you think about the pressure mounting on the police. You think about the pressure mounting on the lodge and how influential that man was and how much money he had. And then randomly his son goes on this like vacation. Yeah, if his son was being questioned. Um, Yeah, I guess I can kind of see why they were looking to pin it on anyone, like whoever's closest. Yeah. Um, And then not to mention, like you just went through kind of like a slew of things, like the questioning tactics. Yeah. So he could have been fed a lot of those details too. And then there's the question. It's like, yeah, I remember a plane. Oh, yeah. And then there's the question too of like whether or not, um, like, Here's the thing. Uh, regardless, I don't think there was enough evidence to put Chester Weger away for how long he went away for. But say he was there. I could maybe see that he was there during the murders with someone else. I don't think he alone did this crime. So um, that's been a theory for a little bit. Um, but I like I honestly don't know. And when we get into this gray area of not knowing in the United States, that means they it's are a free man. Yeah. So that's that's the frustrating thing of this whole thing. So. Right. Yeah. So I did want to touch on Chester's alibis for the crime. So initially and then this is it. So Chester, obviously, he's elderly now. I think he's about 82 now while we're talking. A lot of things have changed in his statements and what he said. And this has led people to wonder if he's lying or if he's just elderly. Like, are we just at the point where he's old, you know, and it was years ago? And how is he supposed to remember? And then if you think he's innocent, how is he supposed to remember that random day in March and what the hell he was doing? I don't remember a random day in March last year. I'm 30 years old. Like, absolutely. So his alibis. Initially, he claimed to have been writing a love letter to another woman, not even his wife, Chester. Well, <laughs> My guy. Be doing that. <laughs> but he said he was doing this in the basement of like the lodge during these murders. So that doesn't give him any alib- like witness for his alibi. Yeah. yeah Correct. It's not able to be corroborated. Sure. No. In 2003, he would change his alibi. This is his new alibi. It would surface. He said he was in Oglesby getting a haircut at Ben Franklin's barbershop with his best friend, Stanley Tucker, who we mentioned earlier. Um, Mr. Franklin, who was elderly by the early 2000s, would sign an affidavit saying that Chester had been there when the women were killed. His friend Stanley had at first agreed to this, say that they did go and he got a haircut and everything. But when he was called upon for like the appeals process, his memory seemed to have failed him. And Stanley would pass away in 2006. I wouldn't want to be his attorney again because like. I know. I also want to ask, there was a letter that was produced to Chester during the docuseries in the third episode. That letter, like, it was him writing to his father, I believe. Either his father or his mother. I think it was his father, though. And he said that he had to go to jail for this because there were major power players involved in this case. And that if he came forward, either himself or his family members would be hurt, Mm -hmm. um, especially his wife and his kids. That was what he was mainly concerned about. And that he knew what he had to do and, like, God be with them and like kind of signed it off. Right. But then when they presented it to Chester during the docuseries and the docuseries was interesting for several aspects, like the prosecutor in the case, it's his son running the docuseries. 
his son believed that Chester might be innocent. And that's why he, yeah. So it brings like, there's some family drama there too. Like at yeah, time, you want to go to that Thanksgiving. Yeah. Oh, right. And they said that too. They're like, I have that led to some interesting family discussions at Thanksgiving. I'm sure of like, yeah. Cause even until his death, the, his father's, uh, his father believed that Chester was guilty. So then you've got that whole back and forth, you know? And, um, but his father would also say random things that were so weird about like maybe his innocence. And it was like, okay, well, if we're, we're talking maybes, then he's out of jail. Like that's, that's where my brain goes. Cause you got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's already been convicted. So we're talking about appeals. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, that letter though, Chester would deny that he wrote it to his father and, and then it, but then it, it makes you wonder, I mean, he's 82 now. So what does he remember writing back then? Like, I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. So I'll be interested to know what Andy has to say about that letter. Um, I was 21. So like talk about being in like easily influenced, whether it was like, like someone at power play was, you know, coercing him to like take the fall for it. Or it was the police like feeding him. Like he's, he's easy. He's easy easy to to be influenced. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So this, I wanted to get into, I know we keep going back to whether they died on Monday or on Tuesday, but this was interesting to me. So these women last seen supposedly on Monday afternoon. So it's assumed they died on Monday. However, there were four separate witnesses that say that they saw the woman on Monday and that one of these women had been wearing slacks. The women were in skirts when they were murdered. Their undergarments ripped off. So if four witnesses are saying one of them was wearing slacks, that leads me to believe that one of them was wearing slacks. Yeah. Yes. The rooms Um, were untouched. How they get on skirts? Hmm? But their rooms were untouched. How'd they get on skirts? Supposedly. Or someone's wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somewhere. Yeah. But then you think too, like 1960s, like you, I don't know. My grandmother was born in 1923, I believe. I knew her. Huh? Are they allowed to wear pants? This is, but yes. That's it. Like, it's like, but they keep. I, my grandmother told the day she died. I think she was like 98 when she died. She kept a clean area. Like she was always clean. She always had a place for everything and everything like that. So then that makes me wonder how unkept unlived in was their room. If they're in the 1960s, they're homemakers, you know, like, I don't know, but anyways. I mean, like to me, it's like, are they packed or unpacked? Is that bag yeah. like zipped up and there's nothing other, like none of their personal belongings in the room or. Yeah, well, like I her grandma probably like set out her comb next to her toothbrush next to her rouge. Like sure. Yeah. So, um the clothing that they were wearing um doesn't so there were photos and we can put them up. Um uh, photos of the women that they took in the canyon. Um the supposedly that Monday when they were murdered when they were out sightseeing, right? So, in these photos, their clothing doesn't match their autopsy reports either. Um, yeah, it's like really strange. So their scarves don't match the autopsy report. The scarves are a different color from what's listed in the autopsy report. So did someone fuck up the autopsy report, put the wrong color or the wrong name by the color of the scarf or like what's going on? How wrong are we talking? Are we talking like red versus mauve? Are we talking? Yeah, we're talking like white versus like brown. Like what, which, what is wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now. On the women's bodies, there was also red fibers found. Now, a lot of people believe that this was from the murderer. Red fibers, you know. Yeah. Nothing Chester wore that day would match red fibers. However, George Spiros was known to famously wear red wool sweaters. And the type of fiber, I think they said it was red or lime. Yeah. It's like it's fake wool kind of thing. So that should kind of match oh, that shed yeah <laughs> we need evidence everywhere it's the red sweater um yeah that okay well george, that seems like very well and what's interesting too is george would submit like three of his red sweaters for evidence but then he said he lost one <laughs> he lost one i just imagine like a closet of red sweaters he's like known for this red sweater um he lost one no this guy didn't lose a sweater it doesn't make any sense no. so Many have theorized that the women didn't walk the treacherous trail, like I said earlier, but were driven. And these red fibers, as Whitney would point out in Andy's docu, docu, well, not documentary, um, 
podcast, she would point out that these red fibers can also come from a GM vehicle. The interior of a GM vehicle uses these same red fibers. So perhaps they were driven to that canyon before they were murdered. And that's how they all got these fibers on them. There was also... Um, Didn't he testify too, or you mentioned at one point that did he say he witnessed or some witness said they saw them in a car? Yes. Yeah. George said he he saw them in a car with Stanley and with um, Chester. Right. So he's the only one saying anything about a car. About a car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So hair evidence. There were tons of hair evidence collected at the scene. Yet so far, none of it has been Chester's. Now, this is about to be retested and the results are going to be released mid-April. One of the reasons Andy wanted us to talk about this. So it's still Mm -hmm. ongoing. It's very exciting. So definitely look at his podcast if you get a chance. I'm sure he'll be updating us on that. Um, But uh, he thinks this is what's going to seal the deal and get just Chester exonerated from this. Um, So seven hairs were found on Miss Murphy's glove. Now, these hairs were light-colored. So that those could match Chester's. The other hairs that were found on the other victim, they were dark colored. George Spiros had dark cover, colored hair. There's another suspect, Jerry Nemke, who had dark colored hair as well. Okay. We'll talk about Jerry. I think Jerry is very interesting. Um, but yes, these, these um, hairs were sent off to the Washington University School Lab. And the report came back in late November and it said that the hair was dissimilar to Chester. But because there was no Brady versus Maryland in place by that time in 1960, it didn't make it into court. Yeah. So we're still waiting on these DNA evidence that hopefully will exonerate Chester. But is he still in jail? No, he's out. But he's just getting his name cleared of this crime. Cleared. Yeah. And he, he would be um, he would be eligible for at least a hundred million dollar settlement. Oh, that's, that'd be nice. That's a lot of time that, I mean, no amount of settlement like gives you your life back. No, I was on live. You mentioned. Yeah. I was on live with my TikTok followers talking about this case a couple of days ago and they were, one of them said he should donate it since he's so old. And I'm like, you don't have to donate it. He can do whatever the hell he wants with it. I think you should give it to his kids, but like, God, I don't get it. And when he dies, I mean, while he's got it. (laughs) God, like go be a baller like good god jeez louise so jerry nemke is one of the other suspects that we talked about just a second ago so he was 17 at the time and had been at the juvenile camp we discussed earlier at the beginning of this yeah that's so weird the juvenile boys are out like finding the body yeah that are in the search for one and then they're the ones that find the body yeah so in that same year in 1960 he would confess to another murder the murder of marilyn duncan after beating her head in with a brick, removing okay. her clothes. Like a really then, similar MO. Oh, and then did he pose her body? Let me guess. He, I, he didn't, he, they didn't say that, but removing her clothes and taking mm-hmm. her money before fleeing. Okay. So but, it's like, yeah, disrespecting her body and yeah. Yeah. But he denied the Star of Rock killings. So I guess we're good to go. And that's Chester's fault. Like, okay. Also, he was 19. Was a was he a juvenile when he committed the first crime or something like? No, he's oh, almost seventeen. Yeah. Um. So George Spiros, who oh, oh, and just to note on Jerry, um, if there will be more, I could only find like one article about him, and it was that article where he talked about murdering Marilyn, and he said that he wasn't responsible for the Starbuck murder. So I guess we'll trust him on that. But um, that I found it from like back in the day. So. There, Andy said in, a, in an episode on his podcast, they're going to be kind of touching on Jerry. So I'm sure he'll have much more information than we will. Make sure you check his podcast out because I'm sure he's going to like go through what the heck was going on with Jerry. And he's he yeah. murdered a woman in a very similar fashion. Like, it's so strange to me. So he was convicted of it at that time when he was at this boys camp. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was 1960. So it's the same year. So same year that well, like, let's get these guys out on a search party. Yeah. Great. So, and it's interesting they found them so quick. I guess so interesting. But George Spiros. Was he one of the ones, do we know, that found her, found them? I don't know. 
we could ask Andy, do you need to drop these things down? Okay, right. I need to rewatch this before. <laughs> yeah, I have so much to ask Andy. I told him, I'm like, we're going to have a lot. <laughs> um, witness. Okay. So George Spiros talked about him at length. Okay. So according to one of the women in the documentary, although I'm not sure how reliable she is, um, she is a part of a group that was trying to free Chester and they had a lot of crazy conspiracy theories, but she would say in the documentary that George was extremely sadistic and that he would sexually harass her while she was a maid at the lodge. Okay. So he also had two dogs that he would kind of like use against people supposedly. So when, and that was what this woman was like, well, there's, there's how he kept the other two women at bay while he beat in the head of like, if he used his dogs kind of thing, right. If they're hunting dogs. Right. But witnesses saw two dogs um, that he thought were George's coming out of the Canyon. Now, he thought it was suspicious since the dogs never went anywhere without George. Mm -hmm. There's several more suspects. So if you get a chance, make sure you check out Andy's podcast for more. I just want to touch on those two. Um, But I thought, um, and Andy also brought up a very intriguing point that maybe a lot of people had alibis for Monday when they were asked. But what were they doing on Tuesday? Mm -hmm. If we don't know time of day, death. Right. So regardless, um, no housekeeping, like they could have gone back to their rooms. Yeah. Real quick. I wanted to touch on. So as I'm talking about this case to my mom, my mom says, and I'm like, how could he have held three women at bay? You know what I mean? Right. And my mom is like, well, that's like Richard Speck. Have you ever heard of Richard Speck, Max? I don't know. Remind me. So he went into like this almost dormitory for these nurses. Oh, yeah. Like a whole dorm of nurses. Yeah. Yeah. 1966. So 1966 in um, Chicago, Illinois. Mm-hmm. 1966, Chicago, Illinois. Where was he in 1960 is what I want to know. So Richard. Was he a killer? Sorry. Was no. He like so- maybe. So no. So what I looked up, I looked up Richard Speck after this because my okay. mom was like, this man, just to give a summary for people who are listening. So if you don't know who Richard Speck is, he in 1966, he walked into like this nurse's dorm. He murdered like eight women back to back over a span of hours, raped one of them. There's and like then one survivor or something that there was one survivor. She hid under the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never heard about this in my mind. I was like, where was he in 1960? Like if he's doing like, I was like, this is so weird. Right. So he was from Chicago, Illinois. Right. But then him, his mother moved him to Dallas, Texas. So he was in Dallas, Texas. And supposedly during this crime, he was still living in Dallas, Texas, working for, uh, I think it was Dr. Pepper. It was one of the Coke. Oh, seven up, excuse me. Seven up district, di- um, like distributors or something. So supposedly, but he still had family in the area. So that I just, I I just was intrigued. Like this is so far out and left field, but I was just like, it's so weird that he killed them in such a, like almost similar fashion had so many, I don't know. It was weird to me. Like I was like, pause on Richard's back, but, and then he returned to Chicago to live and, and murdered those women. So it's so interesting. Um, but anyways, I just, I, with Richard Speck, I'd love to do an entire episode on him because I just don't understand how he just suddenly went in and murdered eight women and hadn't killed before. Yeah. Absolutely. That's weird. Yeah. Anyways, but, um, regardless, it's important to mention, mention Richard just as he was able to hold eight women hostage. So it is possible Fear. for a man to hold three women at bay kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Chester's trial begins. Now he's only charged with Lillian's death since they figured the length of sentence that they anticipated he would die in prison anyway. So they didn't charge him with everyone else's Mm -hmm. one juror. So after they did the penalty and everything, he ended up getting um, life in prison, which we know he's been paroled from since, Um, but he gets life in prison. So media is asking her like, what's going on? And she very quickly afterwards is like, well, we didn't give him the death penalty because we thought maybe if we made a mistake, uh, if you thought you made any mistake, why are you convicting him? Um, and also, we don't have to prove that he's innocent. Um, or sorry, we don't have to solve the crime. Like you don't have to prove who did it. No, you just have to give enough reasonable doubt that he wasn't there. He didn't do it. Like it's not him. Yeah, like that. Her saying that to me was enough reason to like throw the whole damn case out. Right, like, it sounds like there's reasonable doubt. <laughs> You're yeah, like, you don't <laughs> him in case we're wrong. Yeah, it's like. Well, in case, if you say it in case or a maybe, then like throw it out. Like, let the man go. Mm-hmm. So, March 3rd, 1961, Chester Rieger was found guilty, sentenced to fixed life in prison, rejecting the death penalty. 
Now, appeals. Chester has known ever since he was convicted that showing remorse would get him, it would make his appeal process quicker, easier. You'd probably get him out sooner, but he still has never accepted responsibility for these crimes. He was released um, during the pandemic on parole on February 21st, 2020 at the age of 80. Spent 59 years in prison. Yeah, and that's like his whole life life because he was pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. So just because he was released uh, does not mean he's exonerated. Does not mean he can carry on life as usual. Not at Uh, all. mm -mm. So um, if you watch... um, the docuseries, as we said earlier, there's things that are still not adding up that Chester has said. But I think if you like look at this case, you just know that there wasn't enough evidence to convict him in the first place. Like, that's the thing. We're not asking if he's innocent or guilty. We're asking if there was enough evidence to convict him in the first place. Right. So, yeah. Has he um, gone through, what appeals has he gone through? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm unsure. He did several. I know in 2003, he did one with Donna Kelly. That was his lawyer at that point in time. Um, but he didn't get that one. And then that was interesting to see too in the docuseries because the prosecutor's son is the one doing the docuseries. And after the appeal hearing, he goes up to Chester's sisters to ask them questions about their brother. And when he goes up to them, they're like, we didn't know you were the prosecutor's son. He's lied to us so many times. Oh, they kind of like, flipped. Oh, they flipped out. Um, Our, and that's the original prosecutor's son. No. Yeah. One of the one of the prosecutors. There was a couple on that case, but yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll be very interested to see um in what comes of the DNA evidence that's soon to be found in this case. Uh very interested to know what kind of goes on with it. I hope after looking at this case that I know it's, it's a very divisive case. There are some people that really believe he's guilty, but then again, I I just have to say to that, like, that's fine if you think he's guilty, but if there's, this can happen to anyone. Like we were looking at Ryan Ferguson. I mean, this very clean cut, you know, young man goes to prison, you know, for 10 plus years for a crime. He didn't commit over a dream. Like it can happen to anyone and it happens to a lot of people and it shouldn't. And um, as Kathleen Zellner said in the Ryan Ferguson case that we were looking at was it's like, it's so, it's so easy to to convict and it's so hard to get that conviction overturned. And I really hope there's like laws in place later where we can kind of look at overturning those. Cause it's just so permanent. We are the incarceration incarceration nation. Like there's so many people that are in jail right now that don't have the kind of money that Ryan Ferguson or the status or, you know, that kind of had that, you know, are able to get all the backing of a Chester Uyghur who, you know, is also, you know, a white male. Like it's just, it's a lot of injustices. Um, Not to mention the injustice for the victims as we've come back to, like if Chester didn't do this, then someone did and they're free or if he was part of it, but not all of it, like someone else is not paying for their crime. Yeah. And then to that same point, Chester going through his appeal process has re-victimized these families. And it's like, well, if they had done due diligence in the first place, you know what I mean? Then we wouldn't hopefully be processes. Like it just, it's crazy. Um, so what did you think of the wine? <laughs> oh girl, I love this wine. I just wanted to stay on top of the facts this time. Um, or I could have like down to half a bottle myself. So yeah, no, um, I'm, I'm excited to have Andy and Whitney on the podcast. Make sure you check out their, um, podcast because they have so much more details than we do, but yeah, I'm excited to have them on hear more about, um, Chester and kind of get some of our own questions. Yeah. Um, I feel like I have so many questions now. I mean, to be honest, I was like, okay, I'm going to let you tell me about it. And now I get it now. Like the floodgates open. Yeah. But to that point, we're going to be asking on our socials, um, including Instagram, as well as my TikTok. kind of, if you guys have any questions um, for them, we do film our podcast episodes about a month in advance. Um, So it is good to follow us on our socials, especially our Instagram, so that you kind of keep up to date. So if you ever do have questions for our guests in the future, you can definitely kind of like hop onto that. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I know for myself, since transitioning to a working from home environment, the importance of taking care of your own mental health. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. 
Now, it's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide and you can log into your account anytime, day or night to message your therapist. It's more affordable than traditional in-person therapy and financial aid is available. You can visit their website and read other clients' testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com slash ITT, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And for listeners of Innocent Till Tipsy, you can go to their website and get an additional 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash ITT. That's betterhelp.com slash ITT. Um, as always, make sure to rate, subscribe, like, share, do all the things so you don't miss an episode with us. And I would like to put out there... If you'd like to be a guest on our podcast or you know a true crime story that you think isn't getting enough attention, feel free to reach out to us through our email. We'll put that in the description below. Um, I don't want to speak for Max, but I know for myself, I've noticed since doing this stuff on TikTok, I have become extremely passionate about wrongful conviction cases because they're just so prevalent and they really just destroy lives. Um, So hopefully we can, you know put some change out there at least bring awareness you know to some of these cases yeah yeah well until next time until we have andy and whitney on until the next time oh my gosh cheers cheers a huda media production audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.